Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. In May 2017, Governor Cuomo signed into New York's law the groundbreaking Enough is Enough law, which requires that all colleges and universities in New York adopt a set of comprehensive procedures and guidelines related to domestic violence, dating violence, stalking, and sexual assault to ensure the safety of all students attending colleges in the state. Our guest today is Michelle Carroll, Director of Campus Projects at the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault. She is here with us today to talk about her work implementing the law in college campuses across New York State, responses from advocates, and its impact on students so far. Thank you for being on our show today, Michelle, and welcome. Thank you. So I want to start off with some statistics. Sure. This was on the website, Statistics on Campus Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence. Mm -hmm. So one in five women and one in 16 men will be sexually assaulted while in college. More than 90% of sexual assault victims on college campuses do not report the assault. More than 50% of college sexual assaults occur August through November. And according to the National Institute of Justice, rape survivors knew their attacker as a classmate or fellow student, that was listed at 25.9%, friend, 34.1%, boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, 27.4%, an acquaintance, 39.2%. And then 43% of dating college women report experiencing violent and abusive dating behaviors, which includes physical, sexual, technology-facilitated, verbal, or other controlling behaviors. And 13% of female college students have been stalked at school. So how do you explain these alarming numbers? What's going on? Well, nothing new. (laughs) Unfortunately, colleges are not unique from greater society in that the forces of patriarchy, racism, and transphobia absolutely impregnate the experiences of college students. And the fact that that violence is is so prevalent uh, reflects the, the very real violence that's prevalent in greater society. And so those numbers, I've heard them, I've talked about them. Every time someone mentions them, I'm never surprised because besides the fact that they are part of very real academic studies, my own college experience, the college experiences of men and women and uh, gender nonconforming folks in my life have reported the same experiences. And so I have no choice but to believe that this is true and that, unfortunately, violence is a normal part of the college experience in this country. And that's just unacceptable that, you know, when you get your college acceptance letter, you can you can assume that in your friend group, there will be someone who has experienced violence while in college. And the numbers and statistics that you shared, you can't just talk about them alone because when you matriculate to your university, you're not a baby. You're an 18, 19-year-old person. And so it's very likely that you've already experienced violence in your life 
or in your home life. And so that's an aspect of the college sexual assault debate and conversation that we don't talk about as often. The fact that our students come to uh, university with experiencing violence, perpetuating violence, and already having experienced trauma. So what struck me Mm -hmm. um, from these statistics was that acquaintance and friend rape was higher than boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. I guess I tried to look at the details for the study, but it wasn't clear whether boyfriend and ex-boyfriend was included high school relationships or Mm -hmm. if this was just on campus. Maybe that was part of the explanation, but it's really striking that acquaintance is the highest percent at 39% and that the other part that was surprising is that 50% of it occurs August through November, which, you know, is a pivotal time yes. in when students start college. And I'm wondering what kind of impact that actually has on the students in adjusting to college and oh. performing. Oh, absolutely. So that period of time from August to November is called the red zone. And so that first weekend of orientation, if you're a freshman student or a transfer student, you're going to be running from one session to another. You're going to be learning about the academic rigor at your institution. You're going to learn about the clubs. You're going to learn about the sports teams. And, you know, maybe you'll get 45 minutes on sexual violence. And, of course, it's not enough. And then you're thrust into the college experience. And... Unfortunately, we don't have real conversations with our children uh, before they go to school, real conversations about healthy relationships, real conversations around uh, sexuality, um, respect, consent. Uh, These conversations don't happen. And so when students come to college, they've seen movies like Animal House or, gosh, I, I don't even know what else is out there, plenty of other films that show college to be the time where you party and everyone's having sex and everyone is drinking and everyone's doing drugs. And statistics show us that that's not really the case, that that not as many kids in college are doing are, are drinking or binge drinking as it seems when you're part of that community. And so when you start school and you're victimized at, at any point, it can become very difficult to participate in your college experience. And and that's because of the trauma that you experience, especially going to, you know, a small school where you may run into the person who victimized you, you know, uh, weekly. They may be in your class. They may be in your brother fraternity if you're in a sorority or vice versa. They could be on your same sport team. And so when colleges don't or college administrations don't work at building trust with their student body, students aren't going to report. And if they're not reporting, they're not speaking to anybody that can help them navigate a hostile environment that's created by sexual violence or sexual harassment. And it affects their grades and affects their experience overall. I'm a big fan of uh, Wagatwe Wanjuku, who talks openly about how expensive it is to experience college sexual assault. The money that you lose in class credits, in time, and uh, how much you have to pay extra for therapy because, you know, your counseling department doesn't have someone trained in trauma missing a semester. These are, these are real considerations. And I'm just talking about for a student that 
is a domestic student. We're talking about an international student. International students on international visas can't take a semester off. They lose their visa. They have to go home. Yeah, I actually remember reading an article by a mother of a rape victim from college um, that she submitted to the New York Times, ah, yes, and it was the article. cost of yes. rape, and she estimated it to be for her family almost two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yes. Um, so I can't imagine what it would be like for an international student, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. So in in two thousand and fifteen, Governor Cuomo signed into law the Enough Is Enough law that codifies uniform sexual assault policy for colleges across New York State. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what problem existed that this law seeks to address? How were colleges actually handling these cases before the law was passed? Sure. Speaking specifically in New York, there was no state law that held New York State universities accountable for preventing or addressing sexual violence on their college campuses. Prior to passing Education Law 129B, also known as Enough is Enough, Universities in New York State were only beholden to Title IX and uh, and Cleary and other federal legislation that addressed campus sexual assault. Can can you go into Title IX and Cleary? Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. So Title IX and Cleary are uh, national pieces of legislation that address sexual violence in in different ways. So let's start with Title IX. So Title IX is, I want to say it's like 158 words. It's a few short sentences. And when we first passed Title IX, which was in the 70s, we only applied it to gender discrimination in regards to college athletics. As the country changed, as colleges changed, as American society changed, we started to apply Title IX to other examples of sex discrimination beyond uh, athletics or funding for athletics and started to apply it to sexual violence. And so our federal government recognizes sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking as gender discrimination. And if there is an instance of gender discrimination on a college campus or an institution that receives federal monies, it is the responsibility of that institution to right that gender discrimination and work to prevent it from happening again. So broadly, that's that's what Title IX does. Cleary, on the other hand, is, is very different. Cleary is more interested in reporting and numbers, and it's not just related to sexual violence. So every university in this, co- in this country has a responsibility to report crime data. So that's everything from arson to graffiti to theft, but also includes uh, sexual violence. The definitions of the crimes vary by state. (laughs) So when you're trying to compare data, that makes it difficult. And so if you're interested in college sexual assault, you've probably seen in the past that universities will release their clear reporting data and they'll have, you know, one rape in a year or mm-hmm. two rapes in a year. And so Cleary reporting data doesn't really give us the information that we need because to be counted in that number, there's a particular way that that student has to report. And so it doesn't really give us the information that we want and need. There also is the Campus Save Act, which is a part of the VAWA amendments to Cleary. And so that sort of opens up the the conversation around that crime data. So instead of just looking at the the crimes on a college campus from one perspective, that is the gender perspective, it includes also gender identity, sex orientation, 
needs to also be be counted. So this is where we start having conversations around hate crimes, what, what hate crimes are happening on college campuses. But that's very broad. So prior to passing Education Law 129B, New York State was just like every other state in the union, beholden to Title IX. But there isn't, you know, the Title IX police, uh, not that we would want anything like that. hope no one's listening thinking that that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> but there was there was only one body responsible for accountability. And so it was common that if you sent your child to the University of Michigan and you sent another child to University of Vermont, that each child would have a different experience around prevention and response to sexual violence. One school while Title IX mandates that there has to be some sort of prevention activity, doesn't mandate what that looks like. So one school could say, all right, we're going to do an online training. So if before you come to campus, you take the five-hour online training, done. And another school might be like, no, that's not enough. We're going to use the first month of school to have weekly conversations around sexual violence. And we're going to bring in community activists and community organizations to talk about power and oppression and how race and gender are connected and how to actively be a bystander, not just in instances of sexual violence, but also in instances of racial violence. Oh, upstander. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a, like a bystander intervention, but yes, oh, be see. an upstander. Okay. Uh, not, not to be a bystander. <laughs> Those are two completely different experiences, and yet both fulfill the requirements of Title IX. I see. So so the enough is enough law is basically trying to standardize, at least in New York State, the uh, prevention and intervention practices and policy, policies. And, and can you go through the details of what sure. the law's goals are? Yeah, absolutely. So Education Law 129B, enough is enough. The goals of the legislation are to as you said, standardize the policies and procedures around sexual violence in New York's colleges and universities. Another goal is to, as they say, end sexual violence in New York State. And another goal is to increase reporting. And so the law is made up of a, a number of parts some of my favorites are the Student Bill of Rights. Note, I didn't say Victim Bill of Rights. I said Student Bill of Rights because aspect of that Bill of Rights is related to the experience of the victim, um, referred to as a complainant, as well as to the experience of the accused or the respondent. There's also a prevention education mandate so that every first-year student and every transfer student in New York State has to receive prevention education. Aspects of that prevention education are learning the different uh, systems on campus that are available to them. So who their Title IX coordinator is, how to get in contact with their Title IX coordinator. Also basic definitions and information around sexual violence, domestic violence, uh, but also trauma. And so this is all mandated. Additionally, there are special student populations that have to receive this training. That includes athletics and student leaders. And the way that the guidance from Education Law 129B defines that is club leaders as well as fraternities and sororities. So the prevention education mandate is one of my favorite parts as well. I'm also particularly excited about the mandatory biannual campus climate survey, meaning that every two years, 
all 444 universities in New York State have to complete a campus climate survey. Not the same campus climate survey, but a campus climate survey to get an accurate understanding of how students are experiencing the climate on campus. And so that information is essential when you're trying to build a data-driven response plan as well as prevention plan. So, I mean, there are There's a few other pieces as well. (laughs) There's more administrative things that aren't very sexy, but are really important. For example, EIE, Education Law 129B, Enough is Enough, mandates that every institution has their student code of conduct online and that it is easily accessible. So if a student goes online and is trying to find your sexual violence policies, they shouldn't have to click through 15 different pages to find it. It has to be readily available. So while that's not very sexy, it's extremely important in making sure that students have access to the information that they need. So the prevention education, is there a standardization of how that's going to be implemented? Is it online or is it in person? Yeah. Um, who's, who's giving that education? So there's no regulation around who needs to give that training. However, a lot of universities across the state have had great success building partnerships with community organizations like rape crisis programs and have invited rape crisis center advocates to do the training. So you have experts talking to students about sexual violence. It also mandates that the training can't only be online. So you can have a portion of it be online, but there has to be some sort of in-person component as well. Additionally, the bill also mandates that universities have some sort of comprehensive campaign. And so that's, you know, a very vague definition, but essentially that means that universities are responsible for making sure that there are multiple opportunities for students to learn about their policies, procedures, but also information around sexual violence in multiple multiple ways across campus. So schools are responsible for these awareness campaigns. And that can look a lot of different ways. And a lot of schools have done a lot of different things around that. But essentially, it means that every university in New York State has to do work to make sure that their students are aware of sexual violence and are acting in ways that prevent the perpetuation of violence. I mean, it sounds like from what you described, there is some variability in the way colleges can interpret how to deliver this information. So doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of standardizing just having the law in place itself? And I mean, what what about the reporting? Is there mm -hmm. standardization around the reporting aspect at least? The short answer is yes, there is standardization of reporting. So Education Law 129B actually lays out how a student should be able to report. And that part of that prevention education that's mandated is that every student needs to be aware of who they can report to and what will result in reporting. So, for example, if you report to your Title IX coordinator, there's going to be some follow-up. There will be a conversation around what your options are because they're private. They're not a confidential reporting option. However, if you report to the local rape crisis center advocate and you say, I don't want to do anything about this, it ends there. Unfortunately, if you report to your Title IX coordinator, they have um, they have the, the right to determine whether or not there is a greater risk to the college community. So it's subjective in that sense. But 
all the Title IX coordinators that I work with do their utmost to honor the choices of the survivor and victim. But yes, absolutely. Part of Educational 129B is laying out that reporting structure, but also the response structure. So how a university has to alert both students that a report has been filed and that a investigation uh, will proceed. And that's laid out in the legislation. Is that part of the prevention education too? So students know exactly what the options are and what happens if they go through either of those paths? It depends on the trainer, but most likely whoever is training is going to cover that information. And that would be on the website in the student code of conduct, which needs to be you know easily available. So that information is available to students. One of the reasons that we at NISCASA and in the advocate community are really passionate about making sure that universities have relationships, collaborative relationships with community organizations is because it's an additional layer of accountability. So if a student feels that they're not certain if they'll be trusted, their word will be trusted at their university, knowing that there is a rape crisis program or another community organization that they can go to gives students additional options for access to services. That's a really important piece of this work as well is that Education Law 129B, while it doesn't mandate that every university partners with a rape crisis program, it highly encourages it. And the way that it does that is it asks universities to look at the services that they can offer students. Can they offer students a 24-hour hotline? Can they offer students long-term, short-term therapy? If they can't offer these things that are best practices, then the law encourages them to work with outside community organizations to build that support structure for students. And that is something that is extremely exciting about this legislation because giving students access to experts in this field is going to ensure that they have a better experience. We know in the movement that when you provide a survivor of violence with an advocate from that first disclosure, from that first moment, it's having someone on your side who can help you navigate the many systems that you might come in contact with. And we see in studies over decades that having an advocate in the process, working with a victim increases the likelihood that that victim is going to have a positive experience as they navigate systems, trying to find justice, trying to heal. What about the other aspects of the law, such as the statewide amnesty policy and the expanded access to law enforcement, including state police? Can you talk Uh, about that? Which would you like me to talk about first? (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with amnesty. Okay. So the amnesty policy is something that I also find very exciting. So it is a mandatory part of the legislation that every university in New York State, all 440 of them, uh, must have the amnesty policy made available to students and uh, educate students on it. So the policy is that anyone can report sexual violence, sexual assault, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, stalking to the administration the Title IX coordinator, a professor, the women and gender studies or women's center head, science professor, anyone without fear of breaking the rules for drinking or doing drugs. So it opens up the door to reporting. And that's 
really exciting because we know that college victims are unlikely to report. And if we can mitigate any barriers that prevent them from reporting, and those barriers are fear of breaking the rules, fear of being responsible for, you know, breaking the dry campus rule or doing illegal drugs, there's concern that they'll be held accountable for that, even if they're the victim of sexual violence. So if we can remove that, we encourage reporting in that way. However, it is important to note that just because the university isn't going to start an investigation into the drug use or the alcohol use, that doesn't preclude the local police or the state police from doing so. However, There is a specific unit in the New York State Troopers that is specifically formed to address college sexual assault. And that's the the, um, increase of— I think it's called the Sexual Assault Victims Unit. That's— that sounds great. That sounds exactly right. <laughs> um, and so I have spoken with them and they're not interested in arresting teenagers for underage drinking. Uh, how, how would they find out the police? It's only if the person reporting happens to call 911 versus reporting or, it directly to the school. Yes, you can call 911 or the New York State Troopers actually have a hotline that you can directly report right to them, uh, which is actually a good resource, especially if you are a student and you don't trust your school administration and you don't trust your local police, but you want someone to look into it, the state troopers have a hotline and I can give you that number. And so you can put it in your notes and uh, they'll investigate it in that way. But the way that the unit typically works is it's a resource for local police as well as campus uh, police. And so in working with them, it's been a really interesting relationship because, you know, there are some advantages, you know, to having a seasoned police officer come with you to a training of football players. <laughs> you know, I I look like your typical millennial feminist and in a, in in some circles that's just going to close people off. But if you can get a seasoned police officer to come and talk to you about drama, to come and talk to you about sexual violence, to come and talk to you about patriarchy, that's going to work with some groups. So so these state troopers who are in the sexual assault victims unit, are they trained by your team? So some of them work very closely with me. I have good relationships with all of them. I believe there are 11 in the unit. I have great relationships with all of them. And I really admire the work that they do because they have worked so hard in building relationships with colleges. And In building those relationships, they haven't shut the door to advocates. No, they've held the door open. In a lot of cases, I've heard of rape crisis center advocates really struggling to get a meeting with the Title IX coordinator or the head of campus police. And because the New York State Troopers have built relationships with the colleges, but also with the advocates, they're a great liaison to open that door. And they've been doing that. And that's something that I think you don't really hear about police doing. They're not, usually we don't hear about police working in collaboration with advocates. I have great experience working with a number of New York State troopers, but uh, one in particular who actually spoke on a webinar for me. I did a webinar for campus security around trauma and how trauma can affect the brain and how that can affect the victim in front of you in that moment. And um, yeah, he lended his voice to that. And I think it really spoke to the campus security who, of course, had heard it from me and had heard it from other advocates. But really hearing it from someone in your field changes the message, of course. I'm very happy to say that they've become part of this collaborative process. They're not interested in 
elbowing their way into colleges and doing investigations. However, they are brought in to do investigations when it's needed, when the campus police didn't do it properly or the local police didn't do it properly or campus police don't know what to do. They need help. State troopers can do that. So the Education Law 129B includes expanded access and training for state police, but not for local police. Correct. So how does that information then get translated to the local level? It gets translated through a lot of the work that rape crisis programs do. There are, I want to say, 86 or 84 certified rape crisis programs throughout the state of New York. And those rape crisis programs, they do a lot of different things. They do direct service for victims, which can look like short-term, long-term therapy, group therapy, et cetera. But they also do a lot of awareness and a lot of training. And so rape crisis programs have usually been in their communities for, at least in New York, for, for a few years at least, in some cases, a decade, two decades. And so they've built long-lasting relationships or are trying to build long-lasting relationships with law enforcement. And so in doing that, that's how they're getting training. However, what I will say is that after the passage of Education Law 129B, there was a renewed interest in college sexual assault, even at the local level. So a number of rape crisis programs have put together SARTs, Sexual Assault Response Team, or CCRs, which are Community Coordinated Responses. And these are like smaller working groups at a local level that discuss issues around college sexual violence. You can have a SART or a CCR on a number of different topics, but since we're just talking about college sexual assault, I'll focus on those. And this is a great opportunity to bring together all the stakeholders, including college administrators, rape crisis programs, the hospital administrators, mental health in the community, local police, community campus police, all come together and discuss how their policies work for students. In some cases, they'll do case review. And so they'll look at an individual case and they'll say, where, where were the gaps? Where did we mess up? And this is how communities come together to improve the experience of victims going through the systems. However, these SARTs or CCRs, their formation is really a function of the community being able to galvanize the players yes. and the stakeholders. Yes. And it, it probably varies across you know, the state. Oh, so absolutely. What makes the difference in terms of whether one group comes together, you know, more easily than another? It's hard to say. I would say that there are a number of factors that contribute to it. What type of relationships does the rape crisis program have with the various stakeholders in the community? Are they able to bring them all to the table? Also, what are the priorities in that community? Is sexual violence a priority? I think there are probably a number of factors that I'm not even considering at this moment, but I would say, I can confidently say that every advocate who works with college populations in the state of New York is extremely passionate about bringing everyone to the table because we know that it's not just us working with the victim. We have to make sure that any system that the victim could possibly interact with is trauma-informed and victim-centered. And we have to make sure that every system that our victims interact with is anti-racist and actively working against oppression. We have to make sure that every system is friendly to the LGBTQ community. And not just friendly, but knowledgeable 
I did a training in March where I worked with an advocate from Albany County and we brought together advocates, DV, mental health, law enforcement, campus law enforcement, and to the table to talk about these scenarios of students. And one scenario had a trans woman in it. And I'm I wrote the scenario and I said, you know, she was recently transitioned. She'd recently transitioned and yet hadn't and hadn't spoken to her parents about it. And so it became really obvious through the conversation that there was very little work done with um, the ER staff around, you know, how to make someone comfortable and also very little conversation around whether or not the SANE nurses, uh, the sexual assault uh, nurse examiners who do the forensic rape examination were adequately trained on how to do an FRE on a trans person, a recently transitioned trans person. These are gaps in our systems that students can fall through. And I'm not talking about, you know, the white sorority girl. She's not going to fall in a gap like that. No, our most marginalized are going to, the students who have, who are really the least likely to report, you know, because of their gender identity or sex identity or race or ethnic background. Or or immigration status. Or immigration status. Oh my goodness. I think a lot about ICE in New York and how that can affect our our undocumented students here in New York. And I mean, that's like a whole other conversation. And Education Law 129B doesn't include immigration status. And I'm sure that was just a mistake. I don't think they did it (laughs) purposefully. Um, I'm sure they weren't thinking that in 2018, we would be living in a world where, you know, ICE are banging down doors and we have 11-year-old kids, you know, using cell phones and recording them saying, oh, you, we don't need a warrant. I don't know if you saw that video yeah, this week. Yeah, I Broke did. my heart and just made me so angry. But especially when we're talking about college sexual violence, we have to make sure that all of our students can report safely, can have access to services safely. And so that sometimes means working with other parts of campus, making sure that your international center is aware of the work that's being done around sexual violence and uh, making sure that uh, your campus identifies, you know, as a sanctuary campus. And even though that can be a meaningless term, making sure that your policies and procedures are protecting students regardless of immigration status and their families. You know, you mentioned students reporting to a variety of people on campus, potentially mm-hmm. teachers, professors rather. Yes. And then the ER staff, in the example you just gave, not having, I guess, sensitivity training around certain populations. Mm-hmm. So does this law actually doesn't provide any kind of funding, does it? Um, I, I didn't ask about the funding. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, so, yeah, so there is funding, uh, not necessarily attached to EIE. It comes from the governor's budget. Okay. Um, and the funding goes to rape crisis programs. And uh, it's actually the Department of Health, yeah. the New York State Department of Health, that manages that funds. And so 56 rape crisis programs in New York get funding from the Department of Health to do specifically work with college populations. Okay. And so it doesn't include 
the campus staff, like professors, like whose job is it then to train them so that when they get a reporting, they know what to do? So Education Law 129B actually includes this fabulous paragraph that universities are supposed to teach to any member of the community that is likely to receive a report. And basically what's in the paragraph is that telling students that they have the right to report to the Title IX coordinator, local police, state police, or no one. It mentions to students that they are, you know, free from victim blaming. And it's it's great in the sense that it forces universities to at least speak to their professors about sexual violence. But university staff and faculty is a particular population that Rape Crisis Center advocates in New York for the past two years have really been working hard on trying to build collaborations with. And it's uh, not always easy. Uh, Tenured professors, for example, are not interested generally. What's the current approach? Is it you you train all the Title IX coordinators and then the Title IX coordinators trains the students? It depends. And then they sort of go out and train the, the rest of the community in the campus? It varies at every institution. Some colleges here in New York work so closely with their rape crisis programs that there is designated space on campus for the rape crisis center advocate to be on campus once, twice a week so they can see students directly there. Some universities bring in advocates to do a majority of their their orientation in regards to sexual violence. And so they'll run, you know, all the trainings Some universities have partnerships with rape crisis centers, and they do their bystander intervention training throughout the year. It's the rape crisis program that partners with the university to plan Take Back the Night. Some universities also have rape crisis center advocates on their policy and working groups that review policies at the campus. So the relationships vary. And there are a number of advocates who are training professors, but of course, only if professors allow them to to train them or to train their classes. So for advocates, it's difficult. And over the past two years since Education Law 129B was passed, we've seen advocates do a myriad of things to build relationships. So we've seen advocates reach directly to the Title IX coordinator, and it works out. They sit down for a meeting, they meet every month, they have a memorandum of understanding that's signed and formal, and they're in agreement, they meet, they do case review. That happens. But we also have Title IX coordinators who pay lip service, who ignore emails, who reschedule meetings, who demand that for every training that the advocate is brought on campus, even if they're brought on campus by a professor or a student group, the Title IX coordinator has to be in the room monitoring what they're saying. That also happens. Is there any way to hold those Title IX coordinators accountable? They're in some ways a bottleneck to the process. Oh, 100%. I see them as the gatekeepers. Yeah, that's um, And true. they wield this incredible power. However... I also have advocates who, even though their Title IX coordinator, you know, is this gatekeeper who tries to prevent them from being on campus, there are student groups that bring them in and professors that bring them in. And so there's there's this, there's also a, a grassroots aspect to it. But in those cases, you know, the university is not utilizing the expertise in their community, which is not to the benefit of their students. Prior to 
Education Law 129B, while there were universities that did work with their rape crisis programs, I'm specifically thinking of the Rochester area, that rape crisis program, Restore, has relationships with universities in that area that go beyond Education Law 129B. They've been involved with that campus for, you know, 10 years. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the norm. Prior to Education Law 129B passing in New York, New York universities were pretty much like universities everywhere else, closed. They handled everything in-house, and that was just how it was. And that's, you know, to the detriment of students because we need to have accountability to, to make sure that universities are upholding their Title IX responsibilities and that when there is an, an incident of sexual violence or gender discrimination, that it is remedied immediately and that hostile environment is remedied immediately and that everything the university can do to help ensure that that student is experiencing college the way that they were before that victimization, that wasn't always happening. I want to turn to one aspect of the law that we didn't discuss yet, which is the affirmative consent part. Right. The most important part. (laughs) So please tell us what that means. Sure. Um, Gosh, I love, I should have said this when I was saying, oh, these are my favorite parts. Love the affirmative consent policy. I love the affirmative consent policy because it does not allow for the the gray area that people like to talk about when we talk about sexual assault. You know, I'm sure you've heard it. But here in New York State, all 444 universities have the exact same affirmative consent definition. And if you transfer schools, it doesn't change. So basically, affirmative consent is, you can boil it down to yes means yes, And so while the definition does allow for, you know, clearly affirmative body language, um, which I think is an important accommodation, it is very much based on this idea that either student or the students involved in the, the sexual intimacy, they must be able to explain how they knew they had affirmative consent. I mention that because when we think about how colleges adjudicate sexual misconduct, so you know, university does the investigation, then you go to the conduct board hearing, for example. Not every university has this process, but my hypothetical university does. So you go through the investigation, you get an investigation report, you go to the conduct board hearing, and if your conduct board is trained properly, they're going to ask the respondent, that's the accused and, you know, colloquialism, how did you know that you had affirmative consent? You can't say, oh, well, I mean, they didn't stop me. That's not affirmative consent. I think this the the affirmative consent definition is just so clear to students. I love that part of the affirmative consent definition is also that affirmative consent has to be established every time that there is sexual intimacy. So it doesn't matter if you had sex last weekend or 20 minutes ago, you have to have affirmative consent every single time. But doesn't affirmative consent... I mean, you could, someone can say yes, one can argue, and they could be, you know, having just consumed alcohol or whatever. Mm-hmm. Does that still count as affirmative consent? No, not okay. at all. So it has to be when you're mm-hmm. not under the influence. Absolutely. And inebriation is also part of it. Cannot, um, you know, any any inebriated status null and voids it. Okay. And what what if there's coercion? How do you, how coercion do you, is also yeah. specifically mentioned in the affirmative consent definition. Physical or psychological or emotional um, coercion null and voids consent. And how do you define coercion? If it's something yeah. that the rape victim feels but wasn't able to express, how how would the rapist? 
potential alleged rapist be able to identify that? Well, so this is why we have the prevention education mandate. This is why it's so important that our students get adequate prevention education because to truly understand affirmative consent, you need to understand power dynamics. You need to understand that while, you know, a person may not say yes or no, you need to understand why that might be the case. And so, yeah, that's a that's a high ask for students, but they can absolutely, you know, meet that standard. I like to use the Aziz Ansari story as an illustration of why affirmative consent is so important. So if you're familiar with it, you know that, you know, Aziz Ansari is much older than uh, the woman that he brings back with him. And even though, you know, and he's he's a man of color and she's much younger than him, probably a white woman, and he makes a lot more money. He's a lot more famous. And so these are some real power dynamics and then brings her back to his apartment. And she never says no. She says, if you have sex with me, I'm going to hate you in the morning. And I mean, any rational person is clearly like, well, don't have sex with them because she's going to hate, hate you in the morning. And that's yeah. clearly not a yes. Um, and, you know, he kept using physical coercion. He kept, you know, kept pushing uh, the sexual intimacy further. And so, you know, it was a matter of, okay, I do this one thing and keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And any rational person that reading that is going to be like, clearly coerced her. You know, she wasn't interested. But that story is great because while she didn't say no, she certainly didn't say yes. And so if that case came up to a conduct board here in New York State and the conduct board, you know, is fully trained, trauma-informed, understood power dynamics, they're going to look at that and say, affirmative consent wasn't there. You're responsible for sexual misconduct. So what you're saying is, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that the standards at a college environment are actually higher than in the normal world. <laughs> because, at least, yes, in New York State. Be, because, yes. yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And there's nothing wrong with that. So another, you know, aspect of this college sexual assault debate is, you know, what level of, of evidence should we have? Should it be more likely than not standard or, you know, or should we be looking at beyond a reasonable doubt? And let's be honest, <laughs> the stakes for, for college are less. When we're talking about sexual misconduct on a college campus and we're looking at, you know, a Title IX coordinator leading an investigation and then administrators and professors being a part of a conduct board, the most that's at stake is your continued presence at that university. We're not talking about you losing your life and and, and liberty here. We're not talking about someone going to prison. And so the evidence use standard doesn't have to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And in fact, making it more likely than not is actually evening the the balance scales for victims because in a lot of these cases, we're just looking at two people who were alone. And we want to make sure that both students have a right to their education and, and access to that education. And when you have a higher evidentiary standard, you're not really interested in making sure that both students stay at that school. So even though you said that there's no potential jail or prison involved in the college setting, but isn't it the case that if a student is found guilty of a sexual assault or rape, that that student must register as a sexual offender? No. Is that not the case? So it, it depends on— Certainly So that's only, that only happens if you're going through the criminal justice system. 
So the criminal legal system. Criminal I don't, legal I doubt system. there's much justice. So it, <laughs> there isn't that much justice for rape victims okay. in the in the the criminal legal system, and that's actually one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the college system is because there is more access to justice because of the the different evidentiary standard uh, that encourages victims to come forward because it doesn't seem like the stacks are so high against them. And Education Law 129B protects students from victim blaming. That's a, a, a part of the Student Bill of Rights, which is you know essential because we see in criminal trials uh, that the sex history, the mental health history of the victim is, uh, you know, available uh, to the defense and can be brought into a court of law as as part of the, you know, perpetrator's defense. That does not happen, cannot happen, excuse me, that cannot happen in New York State. Does it happen? Yes, because we're still learning. But advocates are really upping their game. They are really working hard with universities to develop collaborative relationships and to provide training. And they provide that training for free, uh, which is important because there are companies that are million-dollar companies that make a ton of money training universities. And yet their training is not trauma-informed in a lot of cases. But rape crisis programs are trauma-informed victim-centered, and are interested in making sure that victims have everything that they need to participate in the process and that they're not boxed out because of, you know, a, uh, a member of the conduct board asking them, you know, well, why did you drink so much or why were you wearing what you wore? That won't happen if the conduct board is properly trained. So what happens if a student experiences a sexual assault or rape in the context of an intimate partner violence relationship, how does that bring in potentially different stakeholders into the process? Yeah, it can bring in different stakeholders. It's still the, within the purview of the Title IX office. So the Title IX office is absolutely going to be involved. The student has the right to an advisor of choice throughout the entire process. So that can be a rape crisis center advocate. That can be a DV advocate. It can also be a parent. It can also be your best friend. We don't recommend that. I speak openly and quite often about how important it is for students to look to community organizations, trained community organizations to serve in that capacity because they have the training to do so. But it doesn't necessarily bring in additional people to the table. Um, and you, you hit on a really important fact there. So while Education Law 129B is about you know, ridding New York State campuses of sexual violence and sexual assault. It also includes domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and stalking. But that hasn't been a focus of the legislation um, and the rollout of the legislation. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest about that. It's easier to talk about sexual violence. But also, the funding went to rape crisis programs. Some of those programs are dual, so they're dual DV, SV programs, but most are just SV programs. And so while domestic violence programs still have relationships with rape crisis programs, they don't have that funding to do that work. But there are advocacy organizations, uh, rape crisis programs, that are partnering with DV organizations, have been able to navigate that, and are providing both services to colleges. Actually, the reason I brought that up is because I was looking at the CUNY website, mm -hmm. and they had the Campus Climate Survey on their website. Yes, and it has lot, to be public. Yeah, and I, have you seen that 
um, result for CUNY? I don't know. Uh, I mean, if I have, it, it's been it, a while. It was, it was very interesting because mm-hmm. a lot of the questions were around the impact of various aspects of domestic violence behaviors really? uh, on a student's ability to either be able to study, be able to um, concentrate, mm-hmm. stay in school, re-enroll. Right. And those percentages were very high. Yeah. And and it was just interesting, you know, to see that there was such an impact in a intimate partner violence yeah. situation on student persistence. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say that CUNY's campus climate survey is probably in the minority in New York State. A majority of the campus climate surveys that I've seen have really prioritized sexual violence. And I think that has a lot to do with the rollout of Education Law 129B, the way that we talk about it, um, where we talk mostly about sexual violence, but also reflective of the national conversation, um, you know, where prior to the passing of Education Law 129B, campus sexual assault was a big topic. But we're not talking about campus domestic violence. And so I think that also plays into uh, university priorities. But I also think that domestic violence itself is a really complex conversation. There's just so much more work to do and that we can be doing. What does this law mandate in terms of compliance? Are there numbers around Ah. reduction in sexual assault and rape percentages Mm -hmm. at colleges? Is there compliance around the violence prevention um, course? What what are some of the components? Sure, absolutely. So it is the responsibility of the New York State Department of Education to oversee compliance. However, there is the Office of Campus Safety, and their responsibility is to deal with any complaints. So they're the ones that oversee that portion of it. However, the Office for Campus Safety in September completed the first phase of the audit. And uh, the audit looked at whether or not universities were meeting their mandated obligations. So was the student code conduct easily accessible on the website? Yes, check. Did they have their affirmative consent definition on the website? Check. Were they doing prevention education to incoming students? Check. That type of thing. It was a, a paper audit. So, you know, representatives of the Office for Campus Safety didn't go to Fordham, didn't go to Cornell, didn't go to, you know, SUNY Oneonta. They just asked for this information. It's all publicly available, so you can look up any university in New York State to see whether or not they were found to be in compliance or if there was some more work that they had to do. The Office of Campus Safety is now transitioning to phase two, and we are still waiting to see what that's going to look like. But we do know that the Office of Campus Safety is very interested in making sure that student experiences is part of that phase two. And so if you're a student and you're listening and you participated in your university's conduct process related to sexual misconduct, reach out to me because I'd love to hear about your experience. And if you want to talk to the Office of Campus Safety, they want to hear from you too. And so I think that is probably where the most interesting information is going to come out. 
What's the consequence for non-compliance? So technically it's funding. Okay. Um, <laughs> and is that immediate? No. <laughs> okay. So they can still get funding while they're non-compliant. Oh, yes. And, okay. So if they're, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I can totally, I'll share the final report with you as well as the the numbers of how many schools were found to be fully compliant, um, like half compliant and non-compliant. You can see that. So phase two is about getting those the schools that were missing more than a little bit to be compliant. So after phase one, the Office of Campus Safety contacted all the universities to let them know how, you know, how they scored, how they did. And uh, the universities that, you know, were really on the right track, but maybe like missing a little bit, like, for example, they didn't have readily available on their website the fact that, you know, a respondent has the right to dispute accommodations you know, you lose points for that, but that's an easy fix. You know, Mm -hmm. you just go onto the website and add that. And so, yes, while there is a a financial component, it's not immediate. I would say what's more important in terms of accountability is student voice. So um, making sure that students are aware of how their university did in the audit and holding them accountable to that. Asking your university, hey, do we have an MOU, a memorandum of understanding with the local rape crisis program? Why not? Do we have an MOU with the local hospital to make sure that there are SANEs available to students when, you know, we come in for a forensic rape examination? No, get that. These are things that students can ask for, and it is their right to have it. Thank you. So I'd like to move on to the impact of federal policy on state policy. And specifically... In March of this year, you may have seen our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, was interviewed by 60 Minutes. Yeah. (laughs) She was asked about her views on the rate of false reporting of sexual assaults versus the rate of sexual assaults on campus. And she said, quote, one sexual assault is one too many, and one falsely accused is one too many. And when asked by Leslie Stahl... Are they the same? She replied, quote, I don't know, but I'm committed to a process that is fair for everyone involved, unquote. So we know from the 10-year LEASAC study that rates of false reporting are around 5.9% within the 2 to 10% range. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm curious, what do you think the impact is of to the state law, this state law and implementation of the law if our Secretary of Education has a perception that false reporting is higher than it actually is? Well, specifically around false reporting, I think that Education Law 129B and the governor's office have been very clear in their support of victims. And that Education Law 129B, one of its focuses is to increase reporting. And you increase reporting by making sure that universities are doing the work to build trust with students. If students don't trust the university, they're not going to report. It doesn't matter if there's this piece of legislation that maps out how they can report and what what rights they have uh, during the process. It doesn't matter because students aren't going to read it. <laughs> they're just going to know that I've met my Title IX coordinator and I trust that they'll listen to me. And then it's the responsibility of the Title IX coordinator to say, let me get you, um, let me get you the rape crisis center advocate. I'm going to bring them in. They're going to sit next to you. If you don't want them, fine, but I'll just bring them in just in case. And then that's when the process works, when that level of collaboration is there. But in regards to like Betsy DeVos's comments around false reporting, 
I think that her comments scare students, cause students to question the burgeoning trust that they're having for their universities. And I think that does a disservice to the work that universities have been doing here in New York. And I'm not saying that every university has been doing fabulously, but a lot are really doing the work. And that really, I mean, that's such such a letdown to see that someone at the federal level is, you know, kicking dirt onto the real work that universities are doing. But I also think that her words bolster the groups that are invested in limiting the number of, unfortunately, uh, men who are found responsible for sexual misconduct. There was a New York Times article that came out earlier this year, I want to say, where they interviewed moms of accused students, respondents. And there's this like quote that really stands out to me. A mom said, you know, it doesn't really matter if they did it. It's the way it was done. And when I read that, I was like, oh, you mean you don't like your child being held accountable for the harm that they did to a peer? I think that's really interesting because there are a lot of white cis men who are accused of sexual violence. And through the Title IX process, they are found responsible. Not always, but sometimes. I I went off a little bit on a tangent, but um, in regards to Betsy DeVos, like, I think her comments encourage uh, these these groups that are interested in decreasing the number of men found responsible for sexual misconduct um, on college campuses. I think also what the DeVos administration has done is that they are systematically chipping away at the guidance that the Obama administration put forth. And it's that guidance, actually, that informed a lot of what's in Education Law 129B. So basically, Education Law 129B, you know, puts into New York state law some of the the best parts of the work that came out of the Obama administration, the White House Task Force on Sexual Violence, um, and the reports that came out in 2017 and 2014, I want to say. So you're referring to the fact that the Obama administration required a lower standard of ev- evidence um, than clear and convincing. Well, they recommended it. Oh, okay. They they recommended the preponderance of evidence standard, the more likely than not standard in cases of sexual misconduct because it is a best practice. And so in recommending that, they you know really changed the way that universities look at this information. And so in, in 2017, the Betsy DeVos administration released a new Dear Colleague letter. And in that Dear Colleague letter, they again allowed universities to make the choice to use preponderance of evidence or a higher evidence very standard. For New York, it doesn't really matter because we all use the more likely than not standard. And although that's not in Education Law 129B, that spirit is woven throughout Education Law 129B. So we're not really in danger here in New York of universities raising the evidentiary standard. However, 
Another aspect of the Dear Colleague letter that has really concerned advocates here in New York is the fact that the Federal Department of Education rescinded the requirement that universities investigate within 60 days of a report. It's investigate and, you know, finish the process. And yes, that's very quick and most most cases take longer than that. But the purpose of having a time limit ensures that universities get to it. You know, 60 days is a while, especially when we're talking about a two-year education. You don't want these things to stretch out and continue to affect both students. I mean, both students experience these investigations and conduct board hearings, and they're stressful, not equating the stress at all. Respondent stress and victim trauma are completely different. But we have to acknowledge that this is going to affect both students' education and their ability to perform. And so by removing this time limit, the DeVos administration is allowing universities to drag their feet. And so really the only thing that states can do is potentially implement similar laws to yes. enough is enough. Yes, exactly. State law is what is what we can use to keep our universities in check, to keep our universities accountable. If a student is found responsible for sexual misconduct in New York State, they can either be expelled or suspended. Uh, that's part of Education Law 129B. No essay writing, and which is good. But when the stakes are high, not as high as losing liberty, but high. You're not encouraging people to say, yeah, I did it. I did what what they said I did. And I want to make amends and I want to be a part of this community. Because if we really want to create universities that are free from violence, we have to create university communities that can have tough conversations and can work through harm. And this isn't always going to work. Like, you're, you're referring to the restorative justice work that you're doing. I am talking okay, about restorative well, justice let, work. <laughs> I would love to invite you back for another conversation about that. And maybe you can share with us how that's going with sure. the groups that you're working with. We've had a very rich discussion about all aspects of this law. I'd like to now, in closing, get to the engendered questionnaire, which I've developed in the Ooh. spirit of... James Lipton, inside the actor studio. He had his own questionnaire. So this questionnaire sure. comprises three questions. The first one is, what's at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? My goodness, what's at stake? Everything, everything. When I think about college sexual assault, for me, it's the fight to ensure that everyone has access to a violence-free education. And for me, that is a human right. It's something that I think everyone has to care about because violence robs a person of their ability to be a full person in some capacity, in some way. What gives you hope then? The passion and commitment that I see from Rape Crisis Center advocates who are just so committed to their students, that gives me hope, but also the students themselves, student activists, the college students who at, I think it's Swarthmore, who did a sit-in in the, I believe the dean's office for three days. That gives me hope. The fact that students are still fighting and are so creative. Okay. And for this last question, you don't have to answer all parts of it. You can, if you would like. 
speaking to the listeners. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop? We need to keep talking about healthy sexuality, healthy relationships. That needs to be a normal part of the conversations that we're having in schools, at home, in our communities. We need to stop victim blaming these questions of, you know, what someone was doing, why someone was where they were. Not helpful. We need white men to step up and step back. Step up in the sense that they need to take responsibility for their own selves. I mean, we need more white men calling each other out in locker rooms, (laughs) in boardrooms, in back rooms, at bars. That's what we need. And step back in the sense that when they're in conversations with people of color and, uh, and women about gender violence and racial violence, step back. We don't need to hear your opinion. And then we also need more services and money for services. A college student should not have to choose between whether or not they're going to eat that week and if they can get a new lock on their apartment door. This is unacceptable. We need more money. (laughs) Rape crisis programs need more money, more support, more volunteers for the hotline. Wow. Thank you so much, Michelle. And I'm definitely going to be sharing all of the resources that you you mentioned oh, on the website. So yeah, we have, and will you come back? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of resources. You can follow uh, the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault on Facebook and Twitter, but we also have the New York State Campus Consent Consortium, which is our specifically college resource. Um, and so if you are a parent of a college student, you're a college student yourself, graduate student, law student, you can join the listserv and find out about trainings and webinars that we're doing. And you can get in contact with me about any issues you're seeing at your university. I don't, you can report anonymously to me. Great. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.